0: Welcome to the May 2020 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. I'm Lisa Louise Cook. As always, we are going to kick off this episode with a story of genealogical success from one of our listeners in the Tree Talk segment. And then in our featured interview, Rachel Rifkin will be joining me. Now, Rachel has recently written an article for Good Housekeeping called, We're Losing Generations of Family History Because We Don't Share Our Stories and she's here today to provide some ideas on how to get your kids, your siblings, and your parents talking. In the DNA Deconstructed segment, your DNA guide, Diane Southard, will stop by to answer your questions about opting in to DNA research studies. Author and Family Tree University instructor, Lisa Alzo is back, this time to share some of her favorite websites and apps for writing your family story. And then we're gonna wrap things up at the editor's desk here at Family Tree Magazine, this time checking in with Amanda Epperson. She's the e-learning producer at Family Tree University, and she's got some terrific new opportunities for you for learning at home. As always, we have a lot to cover, so let's get to it. First up, Tree Talk. In the Tree Talk segment, we invite you, the listener, to share your stories of genealogical success. And Jennifer Reyes wrote us recently to do just that. And here's what she had to say. Growing up, I always knew that my maternal side of the family were Norwegian and Danish. What I didn't know, neither did anyone else in my family, was that we were also German. We descend from a group of people from Germany known as the Potato Germans of Denmark. In 1759, a decree was put out to other countries for people to come to an area of Denmark known as the Jutland Heaths to help cultivate the land. It was seen as a hard place to cultivate, land being wasted for non-use by the citizens at that time. In around 1760-1761, immigrants came from various parts of Germany upon the promises of the King of Denmark. From not having to pay taxes to not having to serve in the military, from being given land to also being given a stipend per month, each family would get so much for each man, woman, and child. So many people actually came that it was deemed necessary to evaluate those who came for their character and worth, basically if they would benefit the society or not. Ultimately, out of hundreds, only 59 or so families were allowed to stay Of those that stayed, I'm related to approximately three quarters of them in one way or another. This was very surprising to my family and myself. No one had ever heard anything about this, and I'm quite sure many of my ancestors from about 1850 to now never even knew about this. Since learning about the potato Germans, I've been able to discover websites dedicated to these pioneer immigrants to Denmark and traced my family back to them. I have also located family here in the U.S. that I never knew before, and who also have found out the same information as I have found. It's been such an interesting and enlightening journey. I just wish my maternal grandfather was still alive so I could share with him all that I have found on our ancestors. He would have been so excited. The Danish side of my family had been a little bit of a mystery to me. When I was younger, I never thought to question my grandfather about our family, and so after he passed, I was kind of flying blindly due to a lack of information. It's amazing what one can find when they keep looking, no matter how big of a brick wall they are facing. To this day, the descendants of these pioneers have memorialized these people with a stone carved with all the pioneer names on it at the location of the heath also there is a reunion that takes place by the descendants to keep alive the memory of these great pioneers it is such an awesome feeling to know that i am descended from such great people who took a chance for whatever reason to immigrate to a new country and begin a legacy that i hope will never be forgotten thank you so much jennifer for sharing your story and your genealogical success And if you have a success story that you'd like to share with the rest of us to inspire us on, email us at familytree at yankeepub.com. That's familytree at yankeepub.com. In today's featured interview, I've invited author Rachel Rifkin to the show for a conversation about the importance of storytelling. Now, Rachel recently wrote an article for Good Housekeeping. It's called, We're Losing Generations of Family History Because We Don't Share Our Stories. And she's here today to provide some ideas on how to get your kids, your siblings, and your parents talking. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Hi, thank you for inviting me. Well, this is a great article. It's certainly one that's applicable to all family historians. And the title of your article says that, generally speaking, people are not sharing their stories.
1: Why do you think that is? I think because it's just kind of become a, a lost art. Uh, people don't necessarily think to share their family stories. Maybe their parents and grandparents didn't do it. Um, maybe we're just too distracted in this modern era, era um, with all the busyness and all that. It just, um, it just isn't happening anymore.
0: You were talking about in the article that we have to kind of cultivate an interest in each other to begin with. How do you recommend to your readers to do that?
1: I always recommend talking to other people about your similarities, trying to find the things that you have in common, because I feel like that's a really great jumping off point to get into the storytelling. So for instance, let's say your grandfather was in um, Little League Baseball or something like that when he was younger and maybe he starts talking about all the adventures he had back then and how he got like his main group of friends from that when he was growing up. And, and maybe then the person that's asking the question for like maybe a grandson or a granddaughter, you know, gets to share their own adventures in little league with them and then, then get to bond over that moment. And from there, then there's like a lot more investment in the stories because you feel like, oh, we have all these things in common. I want to hear more about this person and more about all their life stories. And you were just
0: mentioning, you know, the grandchildren talking to grandparents. And I think, you know, it's getting that multiple generation participation going. that's, That's really key. And I think you mentioned in the article starting when they're young. Right. So so getting kids is kind of seeing this as a natural part of, hey, we make time to talk and to share stories.
1: Yes. So there's all these health benefits for kids and older adults when we share our family stories. For kids, it's been shown that um, when you know your family stories, you have higher self-esteem and you're more resilient. And that's probably because, you know, you're hearing the family stories and they show that family members have persevered over the years, even through hardships, which is so important, especially now. I think um, sharing stories of hardships from our past is so helpful to getting through today right now. Um, And for older adults, the health benefits are improved cognitive function and, you know, also higher self-esteem. And because you get to look back on your memories and realize I did a lot of cool things in my life, you know. And other people in my family are relating to it. So there's all that.
0: And it's interesting because we kind of have the stereotype, which was always grandpa and grandson are talking to each other. And grandpa's like, yeah, well, I walked, you know, five miles. And it's so much (sighs) harder. And of course, in reality, you take that hardship story and you don't necessarily contrast it to say, well, this was worse. But you actually turn it to say, I can understand you're struggling and here's ways I struggled. So in a sense, you make it like you said, a a common ground versus a contrast in, oh, well, this was so much worse than that. So I, I can yeah. imagine that. that really helps kids realize they're not in this alone, that life is challenging for everybody and that um, people make it through. Yeah, I think that's so important
1: when you're growing up because not everyone talks about their hardships um, in that way, and and just the whole idea of getting through. You're young, and you know you don't know that you're not the first person to to have uh, issues with with certain things. You know, you feel like you're alone, and no one else has went through what you went through. But that's not true. You know, there's so many generations that have went through similar things, and when you share your struggles and how you got through it, I think that's a really important point in itself. It's really helpful for other generations. And, you know, even for yourself to realize you went through all this stuff and you've made it through and you're a strong person.
0: Now, you have some great examples of questions. I'd love to have you share with our listeners some of your favorite questions to kind of warm people up and get the conversation going.
1: Oh, yeah, sure. Um, These are good questions for getting people to talk about their similarities. And they're also just really kind of fun questions. Um, Okay, so one of my favorites is what is the most spontaneous thing you've ever done? What was your favorite toy or game growing up? That's a really cool one because I think everyone kind of gets excited with that one. Um, The classic, if you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice you would give your younger self? What's something you want to do that you've never done before and why? Uh, Have you ever experienced or witnessed something that you can't explain? That's definitely a fun one. Oh, and then one of my favorites, because this this could just get like really long and interesting is uh, what is your weirdest habit?
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's great. And and that kind of ties into, you know, you were talking in the article about it's everyday conversations. And a lot of those questions, you know, it's not like it's earth shattering, but you're getting a sense of what that person's really like, plus you're kind of breaking down barriers. So I really like that. You know, we were talking about um, everyday conversations being the perfect time to share these kinds of yes. um, questions. What other opportunities do you see? What are good time frames to kind of go, hey, this would be a great moment for maybe going a little deeper with the conversation?
1: I think just when you're doing everyday stuff is, is a great way to get conversation going. Um, for instance, if you're doing your chores, for instance, Maybe um, a, if the parent, you know, is around, they could talk about what their chores were like when they were growing up, um, what they had to do. And maybe if the grandparent is around, they could talk about their chores, which should be even more interesting because it's possible there are different chores that maybe, who knows, don't even exist really now. Um, let's see. Um, when you go over to a grandparent's house, you could have like a themed day. You could do... All your favorite things uh, for both people. Just have a whole day of favorite things. You guys could be talking about Uh, different favorite foods. You could serve your favorite foods. You could play your favorite games. Get out your favorite pictures. There's a lot of really cute, cool things you can do like that. Mm -hmm. Beyond doing like the the everyday, there's also holidays are great opportunity to to share family stories, especially. Like Thanksgiving, you could each year have a book, uh, like a journal, that everyone in, around the table writes down things they're thankful for for the year. And then you get like a really nice year-by-year year reflection of things people were thankful for every year. Um, maybe during Christmas or Hanukkah or holidays during wintertime, you could talk about favorite um, past wintertime holidays, um, maybe gifts you got and that you really liked, what it was like for you when you were young and how it's different today. Uh, you could talk about traditions that you had every year and traditions that you wanted to make in your own family when you got, got older and had kids and everyone gets to share those kind of things. So it's really fun to do around holidays as well as just everyday moments, thinking about you know, what you were doing during those everyday moments when you were a kid and sharing that with your kids or grandkids.
0: Mm, I like that. Personally, I think you mentioned in the article that you're kind of a family historian in your family. Do you have any favorite ways to capture these? Because I'm thinking about all these wonderful stories that are coming to light in these different scenarios. What are some of your favorite ways to kind of capture the story?
1: Well, uh, I, I like doing books. I do books usually through blurbs. So, I the way I usually do it is I I interview people and then I transcribe what they said and then I just turn it into a narrative along with photos. But I mean, that's a big project to do. There are simpler things like you could do slideshows with family photos and some narrative on the side. So you could also record. Audio, uh, just as someone's speaking, and you can do that through, there's like a variety of apps, and of course, if you have your phone, you can record uh, the person talking, either just the audio or the video and the audio with your phone. Um, let's see, what else is there? I mean, those are some of my favorite ways to do it.
0: Yeah, that's great. I love it. With You just grab your phone, which is always with us anyway. And sometimes those opportunities for those conversations are kind of impromptu. I know they certainly have been many times in my own family. So I love that approach. Well, Rachel, these are great ideas. I love the questions and everybody listening can go and check out your article. It's called We're Losing Generations of Family History because we don't share our stories. And you'll find a list of many different questions to kind of help get you started. And of course, I'll have a link to that in the show notes for this podcast episode. Rachel Rifkin, so nice to meet you and talk with you about family stories. Thank you so much.
1: Oh, well, thank you. I really enjoyed it.
0: In today's DNA Deconstructed segment, I've invited your DNA guide, Diane Southern back to the show to shed some light on DNA terms of service, and specifically, what it means when we opt into research studies. Welcome back, Diane. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for having me. I was just reading your article that you wrote about just this very subject, and you said that... When we register a DNA test kit, there are two forms of consent that we need to evaluate.
2: What are they? Okay, so when you get your test kit in the mail and then you do all the swabbing or the spitting or whatever and then you have to go online and activate your kit. So there's this process where you tell the company, I got my kit, I took my DNA sample, I'm gonna send it back in but they need to gather some information for you. So the first form of consent you have to give is for the company to actually do the test, the one that you want them to do, the one that tells you about your ethnicity and gives you DNA cousins. So like that's a, a no-brainer, right? You you paid all the money. You definitely right. want them to, to do that test. So that's just number one, and that's, that's a, a quick, easy, yes, that's why I bought the test, right? But there's a second set sometimes of consents that, that we go through, and it's all too easy to just say yes, 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 okay, whatever, and submit, you know, Um, but it's really important that everyone understands that you have a choice, and you need to read what they're asking you, and you need to understand what it all means so that you can decide if you want to opt in to other things other than them just testing you to find out your ethnicity and your DNA cousins.
0: And are they just calling it specifically opt in to research? Or, or is it kind of just this other category?
2: It's definitely another category. And, and you have to, it's different for every company. Uh, and so um, they'll usually use the term research. Um, that's, that's usually a part of what they're asking you is if you want to participate in research. But that's a pretty broad term, right? Well,
0: exactly. I mean, what kind of research? Is it the same with all the companies and who's doing it? Yeah. No, it's not. (laughs)
2: Again. So um, in the article itself, I've got the links to all of our testing companies um, terms and conditions. So all the links have been gathered right there for for you. So you can go and and kind of dial in and read the parts, especially that we're talking about today. But um, there's really two different kinds of research that's going on at our companies. The first kind of research is in my opinion research that has to be done in order to make a good product for us so they need to do more research into say ethnicity results right we want them to look at you know my dna and say oh look she's from these particular regions where we need better information so if i consent to research they can use my dna to help make the german reference set better because my family comes from germany so You know, in my opinion, to make the product better, I want them to be able to use my information if it's going to help them be better at producing the result that I want, at at telling me if I'm German or not. So that's part of it. Um, And all companies are engaged in that kind of research. All companies are, you know, wanting to improve their product, which I think we can all agree is a great idea. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's, that's part of it. Um, but there's another part, and not all companies are separating these out. Some of them are just saying, do you want to be in research? And that includes any research we might be doing to improve our product and other forms of research. And it's the other that I feel like people really need to make sure they're they're watching for and, and evaluating.
0: So just quickly, what kind of categories, what would be in the other category?
2: So a really good other category is health. Right, So there's obviously a lot of hype and interest, especially recently all of our major testing companies now are offering some kind of health component to their testing. You don't have to order it. You don't have to get the results from it, but they're all offering it, which means they're all interested in this connection between our DNA and our health. And they're going to ask you, hey, do you want to help us create this new kind of product this health product and so you're giving your consent for them to use your dna to research a health connection that may be there and so a lot of times you'll you'll log into your testing company and they'll say hey do you want to fill out this survey about um, your earlobe (laughs) and you're like what what do you mean about my earlobe well do you have a detached earlobe or an attached earlobe And it's simple surveys like that, that you take, which gives the testing company some information, and then they can link that information to your DNA. And then they can say, oh, Lisa says she has a detached earlobe. So I'm going to go looking in her DNA to see if I can find the DNA marker that says that.
0: Hmm. Now, some of these sites, like MyHeritage, Ancestry, we also have our family tree on there, the research that we've done. Does this research include then saying, yes, you can use my DNA and in conjunction with this tree I've got connected to it?
2: Yes, in some ways it can. And again, you have to look to each company for that specific information. And when they do that, they're not, it's important to know that any research that being being conducted is what they call de-identified. So in the actual data, I can't tell that you're you. You represent a number. You've been you know, stripped of your identity, essentially, when you're a part of a research project. And so, what I might see is that I've got number three three seven five four two, and this person has listed their ancestry as being in these five countries. But I'm not seeing that your ancestor's name or you know any of none of that is involved in the research necessarily. Usually, it's just location information. Um, de-identified information that can be valuable for the study.
0: So considering all of this, do you typically recommend to your clients to opt in? I never recommend anything. <laughs> <Smart>. <laughs> I, I don't want
2: to be responsible for anybody's choices or decisions. So I'm happy to provide information and, and certainly point them to the place at, at the testing company where they can find more information about each company but I think it's way too personal of a decision for anyone with any authority which I consider myself someone with authority just because people ask me this all the time so they must think I have authority. It's totally a personal decision up to each of us that we need to be making for ourselves and importantly that we shouldn't be making for our relatives because so many of us get excited and we go and we get Aunt Mildred to test and we're thrilled but of course Aunt Mildred isn't on the computer. She doesn't have any interest really in this herself. She's doing this for you and so you're the one at the computer filling in this form out and so it's so so important that you if you get to that place and like oh I didn't ask Aunt Mildred well she won't care no but you need to call her and right. you need to be like okay Mildred here's the, the deal and explain it to her as carefully and, and clearly as possible and let her decide without any bias from you whatsoever like does she want to be a part of this or not
0: exactly it's important to have informed consent and mm-hmm. also we do our own homework I totally agree so what if somebody opts in initially, or they've already tested and they maybe just opted in and hadn't thought too much about it? Can they go back and can they opt out? And is that very easy to do?
2: Yeah, it's really easy. It's it's in your settings. So if you go to your personal account at any testing company, it's usually under privacy or security or some sort of tab like that. And you go in there and it's just a little box that says you've opted in or opted out and you can go double check for yourself what you decided. And you can just uncheck it and save and you're done. The The only thing is, if your data has already been included in a study, they're not going to go grab it from that study and pull it out. So it will continue to persist in whatever study it's already become a part of, but you won't be included in any new studies.
0: Uh, Anything in the future. All right. Well, everybody listening has some homework to do. And of course, in the show notes, we'll have links to the various terms of conditions, the consent agreements that are at each of these companies and Diane's article as well, uh, part of a bigger DNA Q&A. Diane, always great to talk to you. Thank you so much for shedding light on this important topic.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Lisa.
0: Getting started writing family stories is arguably one of the most popular genealogy goals, and yet it's the one that can so easily fall prey to procrastination. Thankfully, it's easier than ever, though, to save and preserve our family memories online. Whether you want to document the important moments in your own life or remember the lives of your ancestors, author Lisa also is here to help with some of the latest websites and apps to make writing and sharing family stories a snap. Welcome back to the show, Lisa.
3: Hi, Lisa. Thanks for having me back.
0: I was reading your Family Tree Magazine premium article recently. It's called online family history, writing tools and storytelling websites certainly caught my eye. And you share a lot of tools in there that can help us reach this goal of telling our family story. What was your criteria in choosing these different tools?
3: Well, since I'm a writer, and I love to write, and I love to teach people to write, I thought, let's make the process easier. And so many people Struggle just to get started. And since we have such wonderful technology tools now where we can do things on our smartphones and our tablets, uh, I thought that these tools, the ones that I chose would be the ones that could really help you outline, organize, and really carry your family history project through the writing stage and and get those stories out there that your family will want to read. So I, I tried to Pick tools that were free or had some sort of freemium model where you get so much for free and then you could pay for extras. And I wanted to focus on cross platform tools, uh, things that could work either on computers or mobile devices. And so, and also tools that had pretty easy interfaces uh, so that you don't have to spend a lot of time with a learning curve with learning the tools. That sounds great. (laughs) Makes
0: them very accessible. You covered, I know, seven different tools in the article. I'd love to know what what was one of your favorites? And why is it one of your favorites?
3: Well, my favorite tool and anybody that reads my blog or takes one of my writing courses knows that I love Scrivener. And that is a tool by a company called Literature and Latte. And it has a free trial, so you can try it free for 30 days. And what I like about it is you can use it on Windows or Mac. And it really sets up your writing project in a notebook, but it also has a word processor feature. It has other cool features that you can... Use like, uh, virtual index cards. It's a, like a cork board that you can outline and storyboard your family history. And then what it does, it takes all of the pieces that you create and with a few clicks and setup, you can then put it all together in a neat feature called compile and then export it into different formats. So if you wanted to do a version for Microsoft Word or a PDF, file or an ePub for electronic publishing for eBooks. There's templates and there's easy setup tools that can help you do all that sort of in a few steps. And so I really like Scrivener because it keeps everything organized. Uh, It does have a little bit of a learning curve, uh, but I also uh, think that once you get used to it, uh, it really helps you to organize your writing. And so that is what I use for all of my books articles and other writing projects. That
0: sounds really great that it can be exported into other formats, because that's always my concern. It's like if you start using one program, you're going to end up kind of stuck in a corner having to only use their proprietary format when I might want to put it out into a PDF or a Word document. So you're saying it's got that flexibility. We're going to be able to do whatever we want to do with it, even though we're
3: we're doing the creation in Scrivener. That is correct, and you can what I call do piece writing. So, uh, if you if you think of a traditional Microsoft Word document where your text you know flows sort of you know from the top down and and it's all together, sometimes writers don't always write in that way. Like you may say you're writing a family history and you have one story and you feel inspired to write that story one day, so you could set up a little file in the project and write that story. Then you create a new uh, a new piece of that and then you write another part of the story and then you can move it around once you have it uh, in place and then put it all together in that final format. So it's it really gives you more flexibility and then, as I said, exporting into whatever format suits you best.
0: And do these other seven tools that you mentioned, are they kind of similar in terms of they're facilitating the creation process, but they still have that flexibility to be made into other documents? Are they similar to Scribner, or do some of them have very different types of tools?
3: Some of them are very different. Uh, one is a journaling app, the Day One uh, Journal, and that's for people who like to keep journals, but they want to do it in a uh you know in using technology instead of in a traditional notebook. So that's a little bit different. Some of the other tools, uh like the Hemingway editor, that's more of a you know, once you you start you know, as you start writing, you want to check things for like spelling and grammar and word use. And and so if you're not confident as a writer, in that respect, you know, doing using something like the Hemingway editor will help you a bit. It doesn't replace a traditional editor, but it can help you along the way. So each tool is a little bit different. And that's why I chose a a variety of tools for this article. Terrific. Now, if someone is really
0: having trouble with procrastination, which I think is often the case when it comes to, you know, the, the family history writing, because it, it does seem a little daunting sometimes. You mention a tool called write or die. It was it write or die to? Yes, that write called? or die to. Yes, it, it, it sounds really interesting. What is this tool? Does it help with the procrastination piece? So this
3: is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> this is for the writers that, you know you really need a kick in the pants let's say and maybe your procrastinating your productivity isn't what you want it to be and i kind of think it it's kind of almost like a game but it's it's it helps you to be a more efficient writer i know uh, a lot of writers and myself included sometimes we we suffer from the perfection paralysis oh, yeah. so we want to get everything done right away right and we want it right but we struggle we struggle and so write or die too makes you write words and so you you go on use the tool you can try it for free uh there is a fee for the full version that gives you more bells and whistles uh, but but it, it's 20 dollars, i believe for to, to purchase the tool but you can try it for free and what you do is you set a word count say i want to write 1500 words in 60 minutes and you set it up and you then it will give you flashing red lights when you're if you're not making it and if you do not complete the goal that you set on your screen it will make your writing disappear oh my gosh (laughs) <laughs> so it's it really is it really is it's for those that really need to you know get in their seat and you know just really want to produce and and I think it's fun you know I would probably start out a little smaller goals so you don't get so intimidated by it but I you know I know sometimes I just need that push to get something done and so it's a fun tool you, know, you can try it out for free
0: and it's interesting it kind of gives you the experience of writing the pressure, but producing things. I mean, in a sense, it's kind of building your muscles, right?
3: That's right. Exactly. Oh,
0: I love that. Now, you also cover family history, storytelling websites in the article. Um, what's one of your favorites in that category?
3: One of the ones I like uh, is Story Worth And StoryWorth was a uh, RootsTech developer challenge winner, Mm -hmm. uh, one of the years at RootsTech. And what I like about StoryWorth now, it it does have a fee. You do have to buy the package, but it's really good for writing prompts. And so, for example, you have a, a relative, an aunt or somebody that you want to interview, and... Sometimes our relatives are just kind of overwhelmed when we come in and start asking them all kinds of questions. So StoryWorth, you, you, you set up a, you, you purchase it, and what it'll do is it'll email that person a question per week, uh, and they can answer by email, and there's also, I think, an option to phone record it. But what it does is for one year, there's a prompt, and then you get a, a book That you can have them produce at the end of that time period. So it's kind of like you can produce a story. So if you wanted to, you know, produce a story for your grandchild or, uh, you know, someone else in your family. And uh, what I know is I know they do run specials like for holidays. So like Mother's Day is coming up. So you may want to check their website. There may be a discount uh, off of their, their, their. Purchase price, but I think it's a, it's an interesting tool, just the way it's set up. And it, I think it's very helpful for folks that may not be comfortable using their smartphone or tablet or just want to do a little bit at a time. So a question a week. Yeah. It kind of breaks it down into bite sized pieces. And
0: in fact, they've actually sponsored my, my other podcast. So if people go to storyworth.com slash Lisa. There is I just checked there is still a coupon on there. So you Wonderful. can save a little bit of money. I did one of these books. And um it's really neat. I did it with my dad. And he could do one question each week or whatever. And it, it really broke it into small pieces. But I went back in and had access and was able to add photos that kind of went with the stories that he was telling, because I have all the family albums. So the finished book was really, really neat. And, and I was thrilled that he liked it so much. And I got a PDF copy of it, which was really nice. So mm-hmm. I have a digital version. Yeah, I, I love that's these, right. I love these tools that really break things into bite sized pieces so that we can reach our goals, because that's the key. It's like it it, it doesn't count if it's not written down, right? I mean, we can think about it all we want. But um, you've really provided a lot of wonderful tools here to help us really make it happen. So the article we've been talking about that Lisa also wrote is called Online Family History Writing Tools and Storytelling Websites. And we'll have a link to that in our show notes. That's one of the Family Tree Magazine premium articles. Lisa, thank you so much. These are terrific tools makes you want to get out and write. Thank you.
3: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, it's time to check in at the editor's desk at Family Tree Magazine. And today, Amanda Epperson, the e-learning producer at Family Tree University is here to give us an update. Hi, Amanda. Thank you so much for stopping by the podcast. Hi, Lisa. I'm glad to be here. Well, this time around, we're talking to you with your your e-learning hat on, right? Mm -hmm. And right, I know that every month we have new listeners who are joining this podcast. And so not everybody may know that the magazine actually has a university of sorts. So I'd love to have you kind of just give us an intro. What is Family Tree University and what's new
3: about it?
4: Family Trade University is our online learning platform where you can take courses um, to learn about aspects of genealogy, whether it's Irish genealogy or how to organize your, all your materials that you have collected over the time of doing your research. Um, so we have been doing this. This is actually our 10th year that we've been doing courses. Um, we took a bit of a break during a change in ownership. But other than that, everything you see should be the same. Oh, Fantastic. So it's going
0: to not be a big change to head back into courses. Let's see here. We're recording here in April of 2020. What's coming up in May, early June of 2020?
4: Okay. um, The next course we have coming up is one on cluster and collateral research, which is very helpful if you can't find someone. Um, Maybe you can find their brothers and sisters, um, which can help you find them. So that starts on May 11th. And then the following Monday, on May 18th, we have a course um, on finding your Polish ancestors, which is an ethnic history course, which will help you navigate Polish records and finding out where Poland was (laughs) when your ancestors um, lived there, since its boundaries were always changing. Then on the 1st of June, we have a course on using U.S. vital records. So that's birth, marriage or divorce and death records um, that are such a crucial part of identifying your ancestors correctly and then the generation that came before and then two more courses upcoming in june we have one on um, creating source citations or how to document your research so you can you and others can feel confident about your research and how you've reached your conclusions and then on the 15th of june we have a brand new course coming up um, african-american roots is what it's tentatively titled and how to search for african-american ancestors in the united states Wow, a
0: great eclectic mix of topics, pretty much anything somebody would need in genealogy. (laughs) Um, I know I just taught the Google Earth for Genealogists course uh, Mm -hmm. about a month ago. Boy, we had a great big class. And it was just, it's so wonderful as an instructor to be able to have conversations along the way. So I'm really like right there answering their questions and um, providing feedback on the projects that they're working on. And that kind of leads me to my next question, which is, share with the listeners a little bit about what do they need to participate, you know, and and how long is this? How
4: is it kind of structured? If they've never taken an online class before, how does this work? The majority of our classes, you have access to an instructor for four weeks of that course. So you can ask questions on the discussion board and the instructor will post back and answer your questions. And this is one of the things that makes us unique from other online education courses for genealogy is we do have the instructor there for us 28 days. Then um, after that period has ended, you will have access to the course material for up to 12 months And then almost everything is also um, available in a download form, so you can download a PDF and most of the videos that we include, you can download those as well, so that you can have them even after that 12-month period is over, because I know it's always nice to refer to something, like if you just can't quite remember how to do something, um, you can look it up again. And then we also have one non-instructor course, which is an introduction to genealogy called Trace Your Roots, um, a beginner's guide to genealogy, um, which is proving to be very popular because you can go in and work through the course on your own and get a basic introduction to what you need to do to be a successful genealogist.
0: So if you've got an internet connection and a computing device, Mm -hmm. you can participate in an online course and gain knowledge during the course, but also take it with you into the future. Mm -hmm. So I'll have that in the show notes. And of course, if you want to take a look at uh, Family Tree University and all the courses there, you can go to university.familytreemagazine.com.
4: Thank you so much, Amanda, for stopping by. I appreciate it. It was my pleasure. I hope to stop by again soon.
0: Thanks so much for joining me for this May 2020 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. It's the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. To get the notes for everything we talked about here on today's show, head to the show notes, which you'll find at familytreemagazine.com slash podcasts. Thanks again for joining me. I'm Lisa Louise Cook. And I invite you to listen to my podcast, the Genealogy Gems podcast, and I have a new show on my Genealogy Gems YouTube channel called Elevenses with Lisa. You can learn all about that at genealogygems.com. Until next time, have fun climbing your family tree.